Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. When we say good for the bird, good for the herd, it's, it's also sending a message here that, you know, we want those win-win solutions and, and that this isn't just about uh, sacrificing, um, you know, our economics in the region uh, to benefit wildlife. We can do both. We can actually create land that is more resilient, productive, and healthy that also um, supports the species we're concerned about and, and the people that depend on it. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws in American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is your host, Aaron Kendall. Today, I have an interesting and great guest. We're going to touch on several different topics that I think will be interesting to our audience. Um, we have Jeremy Maestas, and I'm, I'm doing my best, Jeremy, to say your last name correctly. Uh, and Jeremy is with the Sage Grouse Initiative, and uh, that's a partnership between the USDA and NRCS. And I'll let him unpack that a little bit more. But uh, Jeremy, how's it going today? Thanks for coming on. Hey, Aaron, great to be here. Uh, really excited to visit with you this morning. It's going well. Um, and yeah, I'd be happy to talk with you about a little more of the background behind our sage grouse initiative efforts and other broader partnerships going on across the sagebrush country of the West. Great. And uh, first, I should say one of the reasons we got together is, is from mutual friends at Hunt to Eat. Uh, uh, the sage grouse initiative is, is doing a, a collaboration with hunt to eat about called Western roots. It's about the roots of Western native plants and, and their impact on, on rangelands and ecosystems in the West. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that, but just wanted to make sure to, to mention that's how Jeremy and I got introduced. And then interestingly, uh, an old grad school buddy of mine has been working with the sage grouse initiative, uh, Greg Peters doing some of their communications. And so that was a fun little connection too. After we realized we were going to get together, we uh, connected with Greg too. So anyway, let's move on. <clears throat> Excuse me, Jeremy, we, we start our show uh, with what we've been doing outside. Um, so I'm going to give a little bio on you and then we're going to, you should jump in and tell me what you've been up to lately. Um, so Jeremy is uh, the sagebrush ecosystem specialist in in the partnership with USD and NRCS. 
in the Sage Grouse Initiative. And he works really to, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm, I'm having a frog in my throat here. He, he works really on habitat conservation throughout the West. He grew up in Nevada. He uh, has, has a, a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in wildlife biology uh, from Colorado State University. He's a big hunter and has an obsession with mule deer. So maybe we can talk about that too, because that's obviously a lot of interplay with the sage, sage land ecosystem. And uh, now he's, he's doing this great work implementing large-scale strategic approaches to, to restoration in rangelands, reducing conifer encroachment, you know, invasive species and wildfire, it, just a lot of great stuff out there. So we'll get into those things. But Jeremy, tell us first what you've been doing outside. Yeah, Aaron. Um, you know, I'm a native son of uh, the Western states and uh, sagebrush country, we like to call it, is uh, the big, vast, wide open spaces that for a lot of people is flyover country, you know, as you're going from the East Coast to the West Coast. But um, that's really what we're going to talk about here is the amazing diversity of life that occurs there and the people that depend on those rural landscapes and the recreational opportunities that I think many of your listeners probably enjoy when they come to the West are rooted in healthy uh, rangelands, we call them. Uh, rangelands are essentially lands that are covered by shrubs, grasses, wildflowers, and not trees. And uh, they represent about one out of every three acres in the U.S., um, in fact, 70% of the Western U.S. is uh, considered range land. So we're talking about the grasslands of the Great Plains and, you know, the shrublands, the sagebrush country of, of the Intermountain West. And so for the last uh, 10 years or so, we've had um, a really incredible effort underway. Really, it's it's been called a movement because of the sea change and how we're bringing together partners and tackling some very large scale conservation problems. Uh, and kind of the focal species of, of interest that most have probably heard about are things like uh, the sage grouse or prairie chickens. You know, those are kind of the iconic uh, grouse that represent, um, you know, hundreds of other species that depend upon those, those rangeland ecosystems. So, um, the sage grouse initiative in particular has been focused on efforts here in 11 Western states where sage brush and sage grouse are found. Uh, the effort was launched by, uh, the agency I work for, which is the natural resources conservation service, uh, which is a agency within the U S department of agriculture. And we're charged with helping people help the land. That's our, our mission. And so through that effort, we administer uh, USDA farm bill uh, conservation programs and technical assistance, which if listeners don't know, that's the world's largest source of conservation funding is the farm bill. Um, and so we help uh, provide that assistance to America's landowners in a partnership effort. So this effort involves groups like Pheasants Forever. They're a huge leader in helping us uh, implement that conservation on the ground. And of course, a host of universities uh, and other NGOs and state agencies. And our whole goal is really to 
deliver that conservation through voluntary incentives and, and really proactively work to conserve America's rangelands. We call them working lands, uh, the wildlife that depend on them and a whole rural way of life. Nice. Well, you're, you're clearly fired up about this work. You jumped the gun a little on me because I wanted to know <laughs> what you've been doing outside first. What, what have you been up to? And oh. then we'll, we'll dive in a little more. Yeah. You know, with, from a personal standpoint, obviously COVID's got me on lockdown. I'm excited to get out and hunt for sheds and chase some turkeys here pretty soon in my part of the world. Um, you know, uh, Mule deer is what drives me. So I'm kind of a spot and stock mule deer hunting guy. And I, I, th- all I can think about is, is July and August when I can start to go see who's, who's, uh, living out there and, uh, take my chances at getting up close to one of those, those big bucks. But, nice. um, yeah, for the time being, we're kind of, uh, just dreaming about what's coming this spring. Well, good. And you and I forgot to say you're in Oregon, so you got a lot of good uh, mule deer out there on the eastern part of Oregon. And, and that's where a yeah. lot of your work is centered, too. So you're probably as intimately familiar with that landscape as, as, as any. Um, what, let me ask you this to start, too. What, what's your favorite memory, you think, from sagebrush country, that, that big, broad landscape that's kind of romanticized in everybody's minds? What, what do you think your favorite memory is? Boy, I'd have to go back to, you know, my childhood growing up in Nevada, right? I, I grew up in Las Vegas, so, you know, some might not consider that Nevada. But it, for me, it was Nevada, and we spent our uh, free time with my dad my brother driving three or four hours north to get into uh, the Great Basin, the sagebrush country. And, boy, I will never forget seeing a pronghorn antelope for the first time. And I don't know what it was about that, but just the colors, uh, it looked out of place. It looked like it should be in Africa. And, um, you know, that, uh, speed goat, we'd call it, uh, running across the sagebrush flats at 60 miles an hour. Just something about that has always stuck with me. And, maybe was the early inspiration for uh, what's become my life's work. So, yeah, I, I think one of many memories that, you know, really starts with just some inspiration from nature, uh, going out, being in it, seeing cool things that a lot of people don't get to see. I love that. And, you know, it's one of the things we're blessed with as hunters that we get to see uh, so many different amazing wildlife and we just love it and live it so much that it, it just burns deep in us. Right. You, you know, we have this way yeah. of, of appreciating it that uh, it's hard to explain and I won't, I won't wax on about that too long, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you, you got into this a little bit in the beginning, Jeremy, but, um, tell me a little bit more about how the sage grouse initiative came to be under this USDA NRCS banner and kind of what your you know, your chief aims are. Sure. You know, uh, Sage Grouse Initiative or SGI, as we commonly refer to it out here now, started in about 2010. um, And it really was uh, a response to a crisis. We had the Potential Endangered Species Act listing of greater sage grouse that 
uh, it really sent shockwaves across the Western U.S. because it has implications for many of the people that depend on those lands to make uh, an income. And not for us, our primary client are agricultural producers. So our agency at the time um, said, you know what, we're not helpless in this. We can actually uh, direct resources not only in terms of financial resources through the farm bill, but also our technical expertise, our people on the ground, uh, our, our staff that occupy offices in almost every county in the country, we can mobilize them to help solve this problem. And so that's what we did. Our leadership at the time pointed our cannons to this problem and said, hey, we're going to take this serious and we're here to stay. And so at that point, we... Um, through USDA started building this coalition um, with key partners uh, across the range, not only at the state government level, uh, state governor's offices, but also with those NGOs like Pheasants Forever I mentioned before. And um, we started to figure out what's our strategic game plan? How are we going to solve and address the major threats facing this species? And, um, you know, I would characterize our work as really focused on the restoration side of the equation. Uh, we, we don't manage the public lands and therefore, um, you know, don't have any input on the policies and whatnot. There were other aspects, other partners working on that component, but our focus was on proactive land management and restoration. And so we've been hard at work. Uh, shoot, this will be going on uh, 11 years this year. Um, and just committed to the conservation of these Western working lands. That's great. They certainly need uh, some special care and respect. So we appreciate the work you're doing. Why don't we unpack that a little more as far as exactly what these lands are, what the critters are, uh, the, you know, who the critters are that live out there, why they're so important. You know, you mentioned they cover about 70% of the Western U.S. That's a gigantic piece of land. Um, and I think most Western hunters, anglers, outdoor lovers have know what kind of generally what you're talking about, right? You see these lands out there. It's not the forests. It's these broad, you know, grasslands, shrublands, sage step ecosystem is one that, uh, the National Wildlife Federation and our partners have been working on for a long time to conserve. Um, there's a moniker we, we say good for the bird, good for the herd. That's the sage grouse. Uh, when we say that, uh, Sage grouse have had a tough go of it for a while too. And uh, let's just unpack that and connect that. What are these rangelands and, you know, how do they connect mule deer, sage grouse, pronghorn, prairie chickens, all these great species that we love out there? Yeah, happy to do that. You know, I'll start at the 30,000 foot and drill down. Sagebrush, uh, shrublands, and grasslands occupy oh, uh, roughly 180 million acres across uh, 11 Western states in the Intermountain West in particular. They're dominated by that keystone species, that sagebrush shrub. And so if you were to drive out there, think Wyoming, you know, if you're coming from the East, probably the first state you really hit that ecosystem. And it's obvious it's Wyoming and it's wide open, but it's gray, right? You just see gray as far as you can see. Big empty, yeah. The big <laughs> empty. Some people call um, it, yeah, but it's not empty. Uh, no, it's it's actually the American Serengeti. You know, when you get out into it, you realize 
is teeming with life. So the sagebrush is uh, the keystone that holds it together and supports, you know, not only uh, the food and cover for things like sage grouse and mule deer, but, you know, there's a whole host of other unique plant species living there, other wildlife. Like I said before, 350 species depend upon that sagebrush ecosystem. Um, and so just kind of stepping it down, you know, in terms of sage grouse in particular, uh, they are just a fascinating creature. And if you ever get a chance to just Google one on YouTube and watch it dance around on its strutting grounds, do their, their breeding thing. It's so awkward. Another one of those, I can't believe this lives in, in the U S type of things. Um, (laughs) and sage grouse are, yeah, they're a, like a chicken sized bird. They're actually North America's largest grouse species. They are 100% dependent on the sagebrush plants and the, the broader habitat to complete their life cycle. Um, and just in a, a quick nutshell, I'll walk you through what they do in a year. They, they actually, um, right now are gathering up on those breeding grounds. So we're talking late February, early March, they're starting to show up at points on the landscape in the Western U.S. for males to do their booming dance, to display for receptive females and do their breeding thing. And they'll do that for a few months. They'll show up every day. And uh, so this morning, there's probably birds sitting out there hoping to get lucky. Um, And (laughs) once those hens are bred, they'll move off into an area within a couple miles, typically of those breeding grounds or leks, we call them. And they'll find a secure nesting site under a shrub grass where they'll raise their chicks, hatch their chicks. And those chicks immediately, once they hatch are on the hunt for insects and wildflowers. They need to grow from the size of a little tiny puff ball in, you know, early June to the size of a football by, you know, October. And so they have to eat a lot. And so they're just constantly on the move. Um, And as anyone who knows sagebrush country, it gets really hot and dry in the summer. And so those birds literally follow the green line towards what we call these more uh, mesic or wet habitats out there. Those, those emerald islands in the sagebrush sea. When you walk out there in August, You know, uh, these are the wet meadows, the valley bottoms that are just in stark contrast to the uplands. That's often where you'll find grouse that time of year. Um, And then, you know, going into the fall, the birds start to disperse back out into the sagebrush and where they survive, not only survive, they gain weight just eating sagebrush leaves and buds all winter long. So highly adapted to their environment and um, uh, just an amazing adaptation to, uh, an uh, arid and, you know, climatically pretty variable ecosystem. Yeah. I, they're really interesting critters. We had the opportunity uh, a couple of years back with our public land staff, myself and uh, colleague David Wilms are both Wyoming guys. I'm a Wyoming native and we took our crew up to the center of Wyoming and found some leks and had about eight or 10 of us sitting on a few different leks and man, really cool display early in the morning, sunrise happening, birds going crazy, really worth seeing if you ever get the chance. Uh, 
But oh, let's yeah. talk a little bit about. <laughs> sorry, you can say something more, Jeremy. Oh no, just confirming. It's it's life changing. I I had an opportunity oh uh, a few years ago to take out some high level political officials, a governor and secretary of interior, to go sit on a lek at four a.m. and I'll tell you what, uh, nothing wins hearts and minds like actually getting out there and smelling the sage and seeing seeing nature at its finest. So uh, I'd encourage folks to seek out those opportunities locally. Yeah, it's an experience that uh, you will not forget in your life. It's a pretty amazing thing. Um, well, let's talk to, you know, like we said a little bit, the good for the bird, good for the herd. You know, for hunters who are listening to this and a lot of folks that we work with or sportsmen and women. Let's talk about what that means because, you know, a lot of folks I think know, but it, it's worth making a great connection. Mule deer, elk, pronghorn, all these species live in this same spot. And you touched on it a bit with the 350 species, but, you know, their lives are kind of inextricably linked, right? If, if one of them's doing well, probably the other ones are doing well. And, and a lot of them are carrying out much of their life history on these landscapes we're talking about. Help, help folks kind of see that a little, give, a, give a, a view of what that looks like and why that is the case. Yeah. Uh, you know, with most um, species of concern, uh, they're often framed as kind of pitting, you know, conservation versus um, people. And that those two things are incompatible. And so when we started SGI, we felt it was really important to find what is the common ground? What is the shared vision, you know, here that people can buy into? And we, we got fortunate in, in that most of what we needed to do to solve the sage grouse problem and the habitat threats that were uh, there um, were the same things that actually we're undermining the health and resilience of our rural ranching communities. You know, ranchers not only own and, and operate private lands in the region, but they lease most of the public land. So grazing is by far the, the biggest land use in the West. Um, and what supports most of our small communities on a, on a reliable income basis year after year. So it was really important for us to articulate that. And, you know, when we say good for the bird, good for the herd, it's, it's also sending a message here that, you know, we want those win-win solutions and, and that this isn't just about uh, sacrificing, um, you know, our economics in the region uh, to benefit wildlife. We can do both. We can actually create land that is more resilient, productive, and healthy that also um, supports the species we're concerned about and, and the people that depend on it. So kind of making this real for you, you know, some of the things that, um, let's talk first about threats. Uh, we have a variety of things impacting Western rangelands that, uh, we call threats. And, and that varies from, uh, you know, human types of threats where we're, you know, it, like in the plains of Montana, uh, we're still farming native rangelands to grow wheat and other things. Obviously that's more incompatible with sustaining rangeland uh, wildlife and grazing operations. Um, energy development, you know, when done in the wrong places, uh, particularly an issue um, in the Rocky Mountain states, 
can can cause problems and, and fragment that habitat and, and impact deer, sage grouse and stuff. So we're talking with those industry partners about how to site their stuff better and make sure that we don't have those impacts in places that matter most. But um, across the whole range, some of the biggest issues are actually more ecological problems. Um, they're persistent ecological problems that have been building up over a century or more. And we're talking about things like invasion from exotic plants from other countries like cheatgrass, right? And, and cheatgrass is this invasive annual grass that has come here. It's widespread and is it's really altering the uh, sagebrush hydrology, the fire cycles, um, and something that we're, we're deeply concerned about. Another big one, um, you know, ironically, people love trees, but uh, our opinion and juniper woodlands have been on the move. They've been expanding, they've been getting denser, and they've actually been replacing uh, rangeland ecosystems for a long time. And uh, so trees and, and their impacts on species that depend on areas without trees is uh, considered a threat and something we're very seriously managing in, in key locations. Um, and then we work with producers on their grazing operations, right? So at a, a fine scale, uh, once we have these large intact places there and, and restored, you know, we are working with those producers to make sure that their grazing operations um, maintain healthy bunch grasses, for example, that that provide that resilience to fire. Uh, we're helping them manage their riparian areas, their streamside areas where cows tend to congregate. And uh, we want to make sure that they're able to move in and out of those places without um, compromising the, the riparian values and functions that, that support things they care about too, like reliable water and productivity. So just a, a quick kind of rundown. That's kind of how we think about the system. Yeah, let's jump into that a little more. Like, you know, most folks here, cheatgrass, probably most don't even know what that is. But first off, it says cheat for a reason. It gets going earlier and it's a, it's a bugger out there on the landscape. Why don't, why don't you help us kind of talk about the benefit of a native plant out there and the difference between that and, and a cheatgrass or, or one of these other, you know, noxious invasive species that comes along and why they matter so much for you know, things like soil health and, and wildlife and, you know, resiliency, all the, all the things that really matter in ecosystems. Yeah. Happy to, you know, th this kind of links back to where you started the show with, um, the hunt to eat folks reaching out to us and, and, uh, inquiring about some Western native plant illustrations that we did a few years ago as part of a campaign we called Conserve Our Western Roots. And the whole idea then was to get people thinking about when you're out there walking across sagebrush country, how often do you think about what's going on below your boots? <laughs> you know, really, do you just trudge through it or do you start to recognize differences in the plants that exist out there and, and maybe think about what they're doing? And so in those illustrations and on the t-shirt collaboration we did with them that, that they called Western Roots, you can see some of the diagrams of these different plant types. Um, our native plants, when we have healthy native plants in sagebrush country, 
they're providing a tremendous amount of ecological benefits for us. And I'll just start by saying like rangelands, consider them like an upside down forest. So most of their biomass actually occurs below ground. So when you see plants, uh, probably only about a third of that plant is above ground. The rest is below ground. So a lot of what's happening on rangelands is, is occurring in the soil. Um, but we have, you know, predominantly um, perennial plants that uh, are, are the native species of the West. And so we do have native annuals, but they typically compromise, just comprise just a small amount of these rangelands. What you're seeing most of the time are plants that come back year after year after year. In other words, they live sometimes 10 to 15 years or more. Sagebrush could be 50 years old. We have old growth sagebrush out there, right? And so these species provide that reliable habitat, that reliable forage and, and cover that support, um, you know, most of our, our native species in the West. Unfortunately, we do have other plants like cheatgrass that like to take advantage of opportunities when we disturb the soil um, or, uh, in fact, sometimes just their life history allows them to spread really easily. Like cheatgrass is that nasty plant. If you've ever been hiking in July in the desert and you got to stop and take your shoes off and pick stuff out of your socks, that's almost always cheatgrass seed heads. And you're going, man, this is a mess. Uh, those seeds are partly why that species is so widely distributed now across the West. It just moves very easily on, you know, our socks, uh, the fur of animals, and um, it takes advantage of those niches in between our native plants. So our native plants typically have these really deep root profiles. So if you look at those illustrations on the shirts or some of our um, artwork on our SGI website, you can see that um, when you have a healthy native rangeland, most of that below ground area is occupied by native plant roots. But when we deplete those native plants or they are lost for some reason, it provides opportunities for those weeds to come in. Just like in your yard, if you were to highly disturb your lawn, you're going to get more weeds. And so cheatgrass is the primary weed that we're concerned about in the West. And, and it really doesn't have much of a root system. Um, we, we use this analogy that these annual species uh, are kind of like day traders. They like to get rich quick. They come in and they throw down a lot of seed and then they go away. They take, they, they're just opportunistic and they run out at first chance they get. But our perennial native plants are those long-term investors. They put down the deep roots. They're there to weather the highs and the lows. And that's what they're adapted for. And it creates a more stable environment upon which not only wildlife, but people depend. And so we're really wanting to manage for those native, healthy, perennial plants. And so um, this campaign of, of recognizing our Western roots really was a fun opportunity to get a lot of different people thinking about what's happening as you're just walking across the landscape. Yeah. And there, 
<clears throat> excuse me, there's a lot of great, uh, those illustrations are awesome that, you know, they, they're beautiful and they're, and they're informative and educational and help people get it. Uh, you know, these, these species like a, a sagebrush or, you know, native bunch grasses with those deep roots are, are better served for drought. You know, they, they bring nitrogen and things into the soil as opposed to deplete it. Um, the other thing that's really worth mentioning with, with cheatgrass is wildfire. Um, you know, like I think you mentioned, this greens up quicker, gets brown quicker and dry quicker. Uh, so that means, you know, by often June or so, it's just brown and dry and ready to burn. Um, and, and then that helps invite wildfire in a way, right? It's like if one gets started, it gives a lot more to burn. And there we've seen in, in your home state, Nevada, last year, there was something like a, man, I can't remember, it was 600,000, some huge acreage of a fire right through the sage grouse, often supported by things like cheatgrass. Um, and, and that's one of the huge things that that folks need to understand when you have these non-natives, the problems kind of compound, right? They, they're not just, oh, the, the natives aren't there. It's also, they bring fire. They're not, they're not as good a forage for, for the wildlife. Um, you know, they track easy. The problem just kind of seems to keep stacking on itself. Um, and that's why uh, the work you guys are doing is so critical, um, and keeps that native soil there too. Soil is a, is a really undersung hero in a lot of ways, right? Folks don't understand how important the, the soil biome really is out there in the world and, and especially in really dry places like this. Yeah, you know, you, you nailed it with cheatgrass. Uh, boy, it doesn't seem like much because it's so puny and small. It's annoying because it gets in your socks. But if you just zoom out and you think about wildfire and, and you see the headline news every single summer, or if you live in Boise or Reno and you're socked in smoke every single summer, you're starting to pay attention to what's happening on the back 40 of our rangelands. And it does come back, um, not only to climate, but, but to cheatgrass as one of the things that's accelerating fire cycles. And so our, our sagebrush country, fire is natural, a normal part of it. And our perennial plants uh, stay green longer. And so a lot of our bunch grasses, you know, that, that blue bunch wheatgrass, if you're thinking about one of the more common ones, it'll stay green clear into June, July. And it won't really dry up till to August, September. And uh, compare that to cheatgrass, which is, you know, greens up earlier, literally cheats the native vegetation of, of soil moisture and, and opportunities, nutrients. Uh, and it'll dry out by, uh, June and some places may even, um, and that does lengthen our fire seasons. Uh, having cheatgrass on the land doubles the risk of wildfire. We've had science that's shown us that for years. And so kind of end up in this situation where we're now more prone to having fire more often. And those fires are growing bigger and spreading faster because of the combined effects of cheatgrass and climate. Um, and you know, you know, when you shift to this concept of soil, you know, roots play an extremely important role in a lot of different, uh, processes, things you might've learned about in middle school, like the water cycle, the nutrient cycle, 
Um, and so plants and their roots are actually keystone uh, components of soil biology and soil function. Healthy soil uh, produces more vegetation, but it also allows that you know limited moisture that we get in sagebrush country, which might only be 12 inches of precip a year in most places. It allows it to go deep down into the soil better. Uh, whereas, you know, that, you know, unhealthy soil dominated by cheatgrass, there's just less pore space that the roots have created to allow that to go in. And so we see, you know, issues with, uh, just sites being drier than they should be. Um, people often say that, uh, cheatgrass puts our rangelands in a persistent state of drought. And I truly believe that to be the case because you just don't see as many, uh, wildflowers every year as you used to. And that's because those flowers are in direct competition with cheatgrass. And so when cheatgrass can rob them of that limited soil moisture, it just acts like a dry year every year now. And so, Mm, um, we're really starting to, there's been a big movement, I would say way beyond rangelands that's getting into this renaissance, so to speak of soil health and understanding just how important that healthy soils are, uh, to not only the productivity of the land, but also, uh, climate and carbon sequestration opportunities. Um, you know, we, we've heard, uh, folks say that, you know, just in a teaspoon of soil, there's literally billions of organisms. I mean, it's kind of creepy if you think about it, just in one teaspoon of soil, there's all (laughs) this life, probably more life than there is in the entire ecosystem across 180 million acres. So, um, there's a lot going on with microbiology in the soil. It is alive. It's not just a, it's not just dirt is what we say. Yeah, that's, that's important to help point out. And, you know, I think for hunters, this is, this is a critical educational component, right? Because almost all the species, the big game species that we're out there pursuing live on these landscapes, at least part of their life, um, in the West. And so the health, when you, when you have cheatgrass, you know, and that's, and that's reducing bunch grass and prairie grasses and the things that are supposed to be there. That's the forage for those same critters that, you know, so we've kind of seen a degradation of, of the Western sage step over years for some of the reasons that you've talked about. What about restoration? How's that looking? I know there's been a lot of effort to try and improve things. Um, a lot of partnerships with private landowners like you're working on, how's it going? You know, what are the challenges and, and what's that look like? Um, you know, the first thing I say to folks when it comes to, you know, like who are trying to gauge the success of our efforts with the population of sage grouse is to realize that it's taken us 200 years to get to this point and that we're not going to fix it overnight. So I think some expectation management right up front is really important. Um, we are turning the corner. We've seen massive changes in public perception of sagebrush country just in the last two decades. In the fifties, we were literally eradicating sagebrush as a national program. Today, sagebrush is valued and widely recognized as a keystone species in wildlife conservation in the region, uh, not just by wildlifers, but ag producers as well, ranchers. So, you know, there's been a sea change there in perception. We are hard at work uh, scaling up strategic efforts to reduce these threats. 
Um, and I'll focus on just a few, you know, in, in the high line of Montana where primary threats are that conversion of native rangelands to tillage agriculture. You know, we have been massively scaling up our delivery of conservation easements with private landowners who want to permanently keep their land in grassland and shrubland. And so we've worked with our NRCS staff, our partners at organizations like the Nature Conservancy, Land Trust, to work with willing producers to protect those lands forever so that they don't get converted to other uses. Um, we're also um, in other parts of the range dealing with issues like um, pinion juniper expansion I mentioned earlier, you know, so that's been a big issue for states in the Great Basin in particular, where um, native trees have moved beyond where they historically occurred, um, likely due to our, our lack of fire um, and our disruption of those natural systems. And so we've been targeting our efforts to address that um, early invasion where we can still save sagebrush systems that haven't converted completely to a woodland. Um, and we're seeing huge leadership from states like Oregon and Utah real, and Idaho really stepping up to, to treat lands, not only private lands, but those adjacent public lands. You know, BLM is a great partner in this effort. And the science is bearing out um, some amazing findings. We invested about 10 years ago in the Warner Mountains of Oregon in a long-term research study to find out, like, is this stuff working? And any day now, there will be a paper published in the scientific journal Ecosphere uh, by Andrew Olson, who's the lead author on that study, which shows, in fact, our efforts when we target them to address that threat uh, can be effective in increasing sage grouse population growth rates. And in that landscape, um, they improved by 12% because of the restoration that was implemented. That's the first time we've ever scientifically documented that restoration is benefiting sage grouse populations. And so we're incredibly excited about that. And I think um, we'll continue to scale up with our, our public land partners and others that work across key watersheds where that's an issue. Um, you know, and the other one that we're all turning our attention to now is cheatgrass and trying to get ahead of the curve, not just dealing with it after it's become a problem and is causing lots of fire, but going to places that aren't too bad yet. There are still places that haven't been heavily invaded and we can work to eradicate that, um, invasive species before it completely changes the the ecology of that land. And so um, I'm excited about what we've achieved so far. You know, if you look across um, our sage grouse initiative and even into some of the Southern Great Plains where we've been doing work on lesser prairie chickens, um, just in the last 10 years, we've, we've helped thousands of ranchers address directly 10 million plus acres of land. And so the landowners are all in, they're signing up, they're doing the work, and it's not just talk, it's actually happening. And the science is, is catching up to uh, help us tell the story of, you know, how is this working and how, how well are we doing? Do we need to adjust? 
That's excellent. I'm glad we're turning the corner. Um, boy, for, for those of us like myself who grew up in the sage country, it's been a sad story. Uh, and, and, and I'm, I'm just really glad to hear we're turning it around and, and recognizing its value. Um, that's probably a good segue to the last thing I wanted to ask you about. I know we've both got to get going here soon, but you know, we have this, this conserve our Western roots campaign and, and collaboration with our friends at hunt to eat, but you know, what other action should, should people be taking? Should average Joe or Jane Hunter be thinking about, uh, you know, when they're out there on the landscape or, or, or what should they be doing as far as trying to help these issues and thinking about, you know, how, how they can be part of the solution? Uh, that's a great question. And it's one that us biologists struggle with, right? As we, we just focus on the science and can't understand why the rest of the world doesn't care as passionately about what we do. Um, <laughs> but step one is we need you to, to pay attention, get inspired and, and turn that inspiration into action. And a lot of what, um, you know, folks can do locally is get engaged with your, your local conservation organizations. There's a lot of volunteer opportunities that you can actually get out and help restore the land. Uh, when you're out there uh, hunting, you know, pay attention to what you're seeing and be an informed citizen interacting with those um, private landowners that you may have uh, gained private access to um, and have a conversation about what are their challenges, can, what can you help with? Because they're on their own um, trying to make it work for all of us. And so uh, they can use all the help they can get. Um, on the public land side, they're in the same boat. Huge responsibilities, not enough resources. And so recognizing that there may be opportunities for the, the sporting audience to actually get engaged and help in, in solutions. You know, um, on the policy side, you know, there's obviously a role to be played in just communicating with your representatives about the importance of that you care about what's happening in the back 40 of the American West. Uh, you understand issues like cheatgrass and that we need to do something about that. Um, I think that speaks volumes and it, it lends support to them as they, as those legislators think about, you know, funding that we need to implement this and things like the farm bill and whatnot that are programs that are highly popular, but, you know, they're always wanting to know that, um, be hearing from their constituents on what their needs are as well. So tons of opportunities. I'm excited about the future. We have lots of challenges ahead of us, but I'm bullish. And I think that I've seen um, a tipping point in the culture of the West in terms of how we think about and, and interact with our Western rangelands. And I'm looking forward to the next 20, 30 years. That's good news. And you know, uh, everybody on this who listens to this podcast keeps hearing me say, you know, hunters are some of the best advocates and, and most knowledgeable folks out there who, who kind of, you know, you spend year after year on the same landscape and you know it better than most. And so bring that knowledge, you know, to your decision makers, pay attention to this stuff, get engaged. That's always the most important thing. You know, uh, I, I always say also, we have this amazing privilege and with it comes the obligation to take care of these special places. Uh, like like the rangelands and the sage step and all these beautiful places we get to spend a lot of time in. So we appreciate what you're doing, Jeremy. I'm glad we finally got to have you on. 
keep fighting the good fight, taking care of our, <laughs> our amazing landscapes. And, uh, we'll, we'll put some links in our show notes to, uh, the, the NRCS and USDA partnership and, and, and SGI and, and the hunt to eat shirt. And folks can, folks can buy that shirt and th- a little bit of that money goes towards helping these efforts as well. So, and it's a great, it's a great talking point. If you see it there, they also have these posters you can print and, and get on, on the SGI website of these. It, it's, it's a beautiful thing to look at and it's just a cool conversation starter. So that's a way average folks can get things going too. With that, I'll, I'll ask you if you have a parting shot for us and then I'll, I'll send you down your way. Yeah, Aaron, I just really, again, want to thank you for giving, uh, us conservationists a voice. Um, I would encourage folks to check us out online. And if you don't live and work in sagebrush country, we have efforts going on all across the U S. Um, I just wanted to make, you know, that, uh, SGI is part of a bigger umbrella of efforts, which we call our uh, working lands for wildlife. And so there's a national effort underway to replicate the successes we've had in SGI in places like the Great Plains. Um, And we've got um, some brand new frameworks for conservation action that I'm super excited about that'll be released here uh, shortly to the public. And that'll guide our actions for the next few years. And so we're going big, we're going bold. We'd love to have your help. Excellent. Check those out. Uh, do your part, pay attention. That's always the good stuff. Thanks, Jeremy. We'll, we'll catch up with you here in the future. Appreciate your time, sir. All right. Thank you. We are NWF Outdoors. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life.